How do you stand for God in the midst of a toxic political climate? We're going to talk about that next on this week's edition of the Monday Christian Podcast. Listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here's your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there, welcome to another edition of the Monday Christian Podcast. And as some of you know, my wife and I aren't in Boise, Idaho right now as we took a trip across the country uh, to Cincinnati, Ohio, did a four or five day car ride, um, including getting snowed out in Wyoming along the way and spending the night uh, in the back of our Dodge Caravan. So that was quite an adventure, uh, but just enjoying some time out here on the East Coast before heading back west in a couple of days. And I wanted to get this podcast out to you, though, because recently I had a podcast with Russell Moore on his book, The Courage to Stand. Russell Moore is just a tremendous evangelical leader in the faith community, and uh, I've just so appreciated his thoughts, his wisdom, uh, and really just the way that he interacts with people. I think that's one of the personal reasons I've connected with his writing and speaking so much is just the grace that he shares and the way he uh, communicates with other people. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump right into this interview. I hope you enjoy it. So privileged to have um, a new friend, Dr. Russell Moore, on the podcast today. And Dr. Moore, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, Dr. Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the moral and public policy agency of the nation's largest Protestant denomination, and uh, a native of Mississippi, as I understand, and his wife, mm-hmm. Maria, the parent of five sons. And I've gotten to know um, your work, Dr. Moore, through... Uh, not only through Twitter, but also through your books, uh, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, and then The storm Tossed Family, which came out uh, recently, I guess last year, uh, which was also named Christianity Today's 2019 Book of the Year. And so, uh, but the book that I have you on to discuss today is your latest one, which just came out, The Courage to Stand. Thank you to your uh, editing team for getting me an advanced copy. I appreciate it. And Thank you, and welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Thanks so much. Let me just start with this. How did you first come to faith in Christ? I uh, grew up in a church that had been pastored by my grand before I was born, um, but my next-door neighbor was my grandmother, who was a pastor's widow, and who was the one who made sure that I was at church all of the time. Uh, <laughs> and my, my parents made sure I was there for Sunday school and Sunday morning church, but my grandmother made sure I was there for everything, which in, in that context was most of the rhythm of the week. And so a lot of that was through the teaching and nurture of that congregation. And at about um, right around the age of 12 is when uh, I made a profession of faith and, and really uh, came to own uh, what had been passed down to me. 
and so that was uh, that was how I became Christian. It's interesting. My mom just turned seventy this uh, this last week, and she was very much as you described at Addison Church all the time. You know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and there's yeah. something in, in a lot of ways. You know, we switch to small groups and a lot of things, but there's there's something that I miss sometimes about that, just the the roots of that, and and um, it's it's neat to yeah. hear you share. I'm just going to jump right in. You, you know, should... I was oh, with a, uh, I was with a, uh, we have a, a group in a book club, and uh, we were talking about a geography, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the other day, and uh, Marsden talks about uh, Benjamin Franklin and Jonathan Edwards as reacting differently uh, to the, the, the sort of uh, culture around them. And so mm. Edwards kind of leaned into it, into the religious culture in which he had been uh, reared and and Franklin reacted against it. Interesting. Um, and I think that's really similar uh, to to what happens with them. Uh, have reacted against kind of uh, what they would see as an overly programmatic uh, sort of church life. And I think there is there are some valid critiques there, but we have lost uh, a lot of what it takes to do the the rhythmic ordering of a life that way. So that now. We're really counting on basically an hour a week uh, to to disciple and to gather people together in a way where I, th- I really do think we've overreacted to the other direction, to the hyper-programming. It's funny you mentioned that phrase, order in your life. That's the book I'm reading right now by Gordon MacDonald, and I hadn't read much by him in the past, unfortunately. Um, and I grew up more in more of like the Wesleyan Methodist heritage course, John mm-hmm. Wesley, the class structures and all of that, high emphasis on discipline. And, and it, it is very interesting. There, there is something so um, refreshing and profound about having a healthy sense of spiritual discipline in your life that often I find is, is lacking in Christianity today. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You write on page one, and you were kind of open right from the get-go. So I just want to jump right in. And I guess I'll just turn to it here, because and you share how you were almost um, a teenage suicide from a young age, and you mentioned that you typed that phrase out, and then you deleted it a few times, and walk us through that process of, I guess, number one, putting that in the book, but then where were you at at that time? What, what took you to that dark place? I uh, went through a spiritual crisis uh, that wasn't an intellectual crisis. There, there are some people who um, the, the, the problem is they start to find it incredible that the resurrection uh, of Jesus could have happened or that uh, God could exist. That was not, those were not my problems. Um, my problem was that I was looking at the Bible Belt sort of Christianity that was around me, not in my church really, but in the, the broader cultural fabric uh, around me and seeing it to be strikingly different uh, from New Testament Christianity in a way that caused me to wonder, is this really just a means to an end? Is it really just another cultural expression and means of getting people in line and and mobilizing people? And for me, uh, that was a a real crisis because um, my entire life was built around uh, an understanding of Jesus, of the Bible, of, of all of those things. So it it felt as though everything was um, kind of being ripped out of my life. And I really didn't have a context 
context where I could uh, talk about that because um, there was a kind of evangelical culture that really wanted to see um, people as being pre-conversion testimony, post-conversion testimony, and it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. So you really, really didn't have a context of people who could say, here's how you come through that crisis. But thankfully, you know, I had, um, I had spent my entire childhood uh, with the Chronicles of Narnia. And so I recognized the name of C.S. Lewis on the spine of, um, of a book in the bookstore. It was Mere Christianity. And that's what the Lord used uh, really to, to save my faith and save my life and, and, and bring me out of despair. And it, again, it wasn't intellectual. It wasn't that Lewis's arguments uh, were answering some questions that I was having, although they, they, you know, they, they do that. But it was more the fact that there was a, almost a voice that could be heard um, in the text of Mere Christianity that's kind of like um, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he does it several other places in the Chronicles of Narnia, where he'll do a sort of aside to you. You, know, you, mm-hmm. you really should never walk into a, a wardrobe. Uh, and there's a sense in which you can hear the authenticity of that voice. And so I recognized in those pages someone who really did not seem to be trying to sell me anything, uh, wasn't trying to sign me up for anything, was just genuinely bearing witness to what he had had known. And that helped me to sort of get a grasp and a vision of a bigger uh, sense of the kingdom of God and and an older sense of the kingdom of God, and that's what I needed. I'm curious, as you were writing that, when you talk to young people today— not just in high school, but in college as, as well, universities, as, as you often do. Um, what do you hear their biggest crisis of faith being? Is, is it the intellectual, or is it more—I don't know how you would characterize the other. Not emotional, maybe that's the wrong word. How, I don't know how you would characterize it. What, what are the biggest challenges you'd, you'd see young people facing today? Uh, I uh, often encounter the same sort of um, crisis that, that I had not— there are there are people who have intellectual um, challenges where where they have some particular uh, history or some particular doctrine uh, that, that they can't grasp on, and that that's relatively easy to to work through, mm-hmm. compared to uh, a sense of wondering whether or not there is any authenticity to what one sees about Christianity. That's the crisis that I genuinely find. You look at it, for instance, a year ago, I suppose, I was talking to a Roman Catholic who was saying that uh, he couldn't go to his church anymore on Sunday mornings. And um, I I mean, that's not an unusual uh, sort of, of reality, but I was asking questions about that. And he said, it's not because I don't believe what my church teaches anymore. It's because in light of what's been uncovered in Mm. the sexual abuse scandals Mm. and so forth, I'm not sure that my church believes what my church teaches anymore. Mm. And so it's a sense that that's being taken away from him. I see that a lot, including in an evangelical context of of people who, who see something that isn't lining up um, with, with, with 
the gospel and with Jesus. Now, a little bit of that can be overcome because we can look to other models. But if, if you're in a context where you don't have any good models or you don't know who the good models are and all you see is uh, something that that is not only not living up to the ideals of the New Testament, but often is the exact opposite of the spirit of Jesus, but coming in the name of Jesus, that can create um, a sort of uh, either cynicism uh, or it can create a kind of despair. Hmm. Uh, where do I go from, from here? And so hmm. I see that a lot, uh, a lot among kind of struggling Christians. But I've also noticed, though, uh, often when, uh, you know, I'm on a college campus or I'm in some setting where there's an atheist or an agnostic or, or, or secular, someone like that, you know, many of them, probably most of them are kind and open and curious. And, you know, sometimes I'm the only Christian they've ever met uh, and they want to ask questions, but sometimes they're really angry. And what I've, I've sort of learned early on is that in no case that I've ever seen has that been a personal uh, anger. And in almost no case is it a kind of theological anger. It is in the second step. But it's usually somebody who has had an awful experience with a religious person maybe a mom or a dad or a pastor somewhere back there. And they're sort of taking all of that disappointment and, and bringing that to bear uh, on, on Jesus. And so I think, I think what that calls for, uh, for the rest of us is first of all, a sense of patience with people, understanding mm -hmm. of that um, and not to sort of respond with like anger, but also to say, to realize how serious it is that we live lives of integrity uh, for the people who are who are watching uh, that we may not even know are present in our lives. Interesting. You know, I'll be honest. I first came across who you were back. I think it was just in around 2016. And uh, I'll, re <laughs> I'll read you this tweet that I that I that I saw around that time. Uh, happens to come from our current president. Um, <laughs> Russell Moore is a truly terrible representative of evangelicals and all of the good they stand for, a nasty guy with, with no heart. And yeah. immediately when I saw that, I said, I need to find out more about you. <laughs> and, and, what, and it really it wasn't what you said, I guess, that really struck me. It was more, it was more how you responded in grace and how you wanted to deal with issues um, whether it's issues of social justice and, and now uh, whether it's racial tensions, especially over the summer months, you've been willing and courageous enough to step up and and tackle those topics. And so as we think of, you know, I share that I've lived in Canada for a number of years. It's quite different how we would look at everything and how mm -hmm. some of the questions that Christians would struggle with in the U.S. of how they would see the marriage between a church and politics is just very different up there, and, and how they would right. look at things. But when you think of, let's take, say, an American Christian right now, who is maybe in a place where you were at when you were younger, and they feel very frustrated with um, the church's viewpoint and how they're connected to politics. Let's take both sides. Maybe they're connected to Trump, or maybe they're connected to, you know, the Democrat side, mm -hmm. and they, you know, there's this conflict of interest where it's like, okay, you know. 
you know, can I just have the true gospel? It, yeah. Why do Why do you speak? Why do you speak out on social issues like like you do? Well, I think it's important to um, shape and form consciences for the long run, and so I'm I'm not that interested, uh, really, in how Christians respond to whatever is going on around Facebook right now, and, and whatever our arguments are, are taking place uh, then. Those things are those things are almost like uh, starlight uh, that, mm-hmm. that you're seeing long after the, the stars have already gone out. So that, that's really just sort of downstream from whatever has happened previously. Mm-hmm. Instead, I'm concerned that we have the sorts of um, the sorts of consciences that are shaped and formed for the long haul that's that, that are going to be protected both from a kind of utopianism, um, and that can be found in all sorts of ways. It can be found in a kind of hyper-politicized Christianity, or it can be found in a sort of hyper-therapeutic kind of, in all sorts of ways that can manifest itself, Mm -hmm. Um, from utopianism or from a sense of apocalypticism in the more popular sense of the word, where everything is, is falling apart. Um, and, and I think that there's a, a vision um, of reality in the book of Revelation and in other places in Scripture that is showing you that there's something happening behind the veil uh, that is hidden from us but is real. And so I, I think of um, often, for instance, that the picture in Revelation of the beheaded saints uh, ruling with Christ I mean, that, that's a reality that would have made absolutely no sense um, in the first century Roman Empire, uh, even as the idea of a crucified uh, man from Galilee uh, seated on mm-hmm. the throne of the entire cosmos would not have made sense in that context. It's very, very strange. But that's the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of, of that and constantly asking ourselves, what are the ways that we're uh, trying to to adjust ourselves, as as Paul puts it in Romans 12, um, to the the contours of this present age around us, and usually I think that happens, um, especially in our current context, in terms of finding herds hmm. uh, and finding tribes uh, to belong to, not on a uh, sort of project by project or issue by issue or cause by cause sort of basis, but in totality. Um, and and there, there's a very real sense of of that happening right now. And you can see it in social media and you can see it in cultural um, sorts of, of combat and political sorts of combat where it's, a, it's really about who is to be excommunicated and if you're to be part of this tribe, you have to buy into every bit of it, and you also need to um, be in opposition to everybody who's who's not a part of it. And I think some of that has to do with really uh, going back to what we talked about uh, at the very beginning, honestly, is a loss of a sense of belonging, uh, for Christians anyway, a sense of a, a loss of a sense of belonging that reorders that fundamental priority. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a man who was talking to me. It's been years ago, and he was talking about adolescence. And he said, 
the the primary issue for teenagers is what do they mean first when they say the word we hmm. is is we my generational cohort is we um, my video gaming community is we my political uh, sort of uh, affiliation or whatever uh, it is. I mean, all of those things are, are going to be part of uh, somebody's identity. But if it's the first uh, sense of who I am, then that's where that's where it becomes something that somebody has to cling to. Interesting. Uh, really, really tightly. How do we avoid tribalism? And I asked that in the context of, so a couple of weeks ago, I had my friend Jen Pollock, uh, Michael on, great author, and, and she writes from Toronto, so I'm, I'm biased. I like, you know, I like Torontonians. Um, and she talked, and we talked, had a little discussion, and she's shared how she's had some criticisms of, like, and how she would look at politics a little differently and things from, and she would represent, I would say, a lot of Canadians that I would know. That would look at say like the political landscape and would say, you know, let's be honest, like how could I ever vote for Trump? And then on the on the flip side of it, uh, had a lady last week, Brandy Swindell, on the podcast. She goes to Washington often and lobbies for abortion uh, rights uh, that that for the rights of the unborn, and just does a tremendous mm-hmm. job and has been so helped by the administration's in help and all of this. And so mm-hmm. you have different. Christians on different, not just political views, but when it comes to matters of how we deal with race and, and all these different issues. And and um, why I love these two women that we brought on is like they're very big-minded, and so I, I just appreciate that so much. But how yeah. do we how do we have how do we hold to our views and believe in them, but then also have grace uh, for those that are maybe outside our camp and would hold different views? Well, I think some of it has to do with um, recognizing that you're going to have uh, all sorts of people who may fit into the exact same camp in terms of what it is that they want, but who are getting there from completely different directions. And, And you can't put those people into the same category. And so I think that um, I think that there's a there's a tendency that we all have to try to find a shorthand uh, to say, well, what kind of a person are you? And let me mm-hmm. put you into that category yes. right away. Yes. <laughs> it, rather than sometimes I think that the sometimes I think the issue is not so much uh, where are you somewhere on whatever the spectrum is as much as it is. How are you getting there? And, and mm-hmm. how does that then affect everything else that that takes place in your life? So I, I think, for instance, uh, often about a congregation that I knew uh, years ago that had uh, various people who were serving in local government. And you had two people within that congregation who were on completely different sides in the city council on the issue of raising the minimum wage. Uh, so you had one person who's a member of that church who's saying, we have single mothers who can't afford to live. They can't rear their children. Bible commends us to care about the poor and the widow and the orphan. And we need to raise the minimum wage so that, uh, so that single moms in our community are able to provide for their families. 
the, the person on the other side of that was someone who was saying, I completely agree with you uh, about our responsibilities to the poor. And I'm reluctant to advocate for raising the minimum wage because I'm afraid that what that's going to cause is businesses cutting their hours back uh, so that they move these single moms to part time and then they're really not able to, to care for their, their families. OK, in those situations, these are people who have the same um, the same conscience and it's being it's being shaped and formed from the same place. What where they differ is on the prudential understanding of how to apply. Now, it's not to say they're both right uh, or maybe even either are right necessarily, but it means it's a different sort of conversation. Now, that would be completely different if there had been somebody in that congregation who came in and said, uh, who cares about single moms? You know, if, if they're not making ends meet, it's because they're losers and takers <laughs> and uh, we need to be, uh, you know, survival of the fittest. That would be somebody who has a conscience that's deficient in terms of being shaped uh, by Jesus Christ. And that would be something that would have to be addressed. But the other two guys, they're they're actually closer to one another on the fundamental issues than they than they know and maybe maybe further away from some people who even agree with them on the particular issue than it seems at the moment i think we have to have those categories in mind that, that's such a helpful distinction i love the way you put that i'm, I'm going to remember that for the future because I, I just i really like that and your the theme of your book is courage and that just goes all the way as i was reading the book it just obviously rides through the entire entire theme of it, and it feels like though the word courage is is often so subjective. Like that word is so subjective um, because it looks so different for different situations. And so if you think of someone on the streets of Chicago as opposed to someone who comes from rural areas such as Utah, you know, um, it seems yeah. like what we prioritize and how we view God can't help but be a little bit distorted. And so I want to get into your thoughts on, on why you picked Elijah as one of the central characters of this book in a second. But before I get there, like, how do we embrace the faith of someone like an Elijah um, and not base it just on our geographical location? Well, I think it's, I think it's actually not so much a geographical location, although that can, can play into it as much as it is, um, what's the specific calling uh, that, that God has put uh, on our lives at the moment? So I think, I think often, uh, you know, to go back to C.S. Lewis, one of the things that he said uh, that I really resonate with is that the devil doesn't send errors into the world one by one, but two by two hmm. on either side hmm. of, uh, of what God has created. And I think that's really true when it applies to, to how it is that we're dealing with fear and, and how we're embracing courage. So some people uh, avoid courage by a kind of uh, withdrawal and timidity uh, and, and fear. So you, you might think of the person who's um, you know, maybe in a school context where somebody's being bullied and they don't want to talk to that kid who's being bullied for fear that they'll be lumped in with that person and then be sort of written out of the, right. the in group. Uh, or it can somebody can avoid courage with a kind of quarrelsomeness and pugilism and seeking to protect oneself by being on the attack 
And, and in that case, somebody can really uh, convince himself or herself, well, I'm courageous because I'm engaging and I'm assertive and I'm aggressive in a way that, that the Bible never defines courage that way. It's defining courage in terms of the life of, of Jesus. So some of this has to do, I think, with, with asking uh, about oneself, sort of from the beginning in the big picture, but also on, ongoingly. Where are my primary vulnerabilities? And 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 let me shore that up. So it's it's kind of like I, I think about this all the time. I have a friend who's a recovering alcoholic and we were going to meet one time for for lunch and a particular place. I said, let's meet. And he said, I can't go there because I have to walk past the bar when you get there and I'm not ready for that. And my thought was, I didn't even know there was a bar in there. Right. Well, it was because he had a point of vulnerability that I don't have, and I have other points of vulnerability that he doesn't have. And you have to be aware of that to know how to shore that up and how to how to guard against it. So I think that that, that requires a sense of self-knowledge that's constantly being updated. And, you know, that means having people in your life who know you and who are able to come in and say, uh, you know, I think the problem with you right now is that you're fearful and risk averse, or I think the problem with you right now is that you're fearful and you're acting animalistically in terms of your quarrelsomeness. Hmm. I mean, you have to have people who are able to help you get that insight. Why did you pick Elijah as the central character, and what lessons from his life do you think really apply to Christians, in, in especially Western Christians, uh, that might be listening to this podcast today? I, I think the reason that I chose Elijah is because um, Elijah is one of those figures that's all over the Bible in sort of um, hidden echoes and uh, allusions. He, he, he's only there for a short time in First and Second Kings, but he's all over the place hmm. in terms of the spirit of Elijah is coming and, and uh, Elijah will come before the great and, and terrible day of the Lord. But also because I, I realized uh, that when I would think about Elijah, I was thinking about him wrongly in ways that, that also had to do with how I was thinking about courage generally. So when I would think about Elijah, I mean, we, we all tend to think about um, to think about particular figures in terms of what's the sort of key moment in their lives. And what I would see as the hinge moment of Elijah is that, that contest on Mount Carmel, where he's uh, with the, the prophets of Baal, and uh, they're having a contest to see which God is going to answer. And Baal doesn't, uh, obviously, and God sends down fire from heaven. It's this moment of real triumph, and it's the sort of uh, reality that I think all of us want. We, we want uh, vindication that we can point to and say, see, <laughs> this is what it is. And, and there's so many times when, uh, I mean, you're, you maybe someone's a Christian and they have parents who think they're, they're crazy, uh, and it would be really easy to say, okay, well, God send down fire from heaven, boom. Okay, we've settled this. Now, now let's let's move on. And so I, I had that sense of Elijah, uh, but the more that I spent in the text, the more I started to see 
that the hinge point of Elijah's life was not that. Uh, that was an important part of it, but it was sending him somewhere else. And the actual place where God is doing the most in the life of Elijah is in the wilderness uh, when he's on the run from Ahab and Jezebel. And he, he's constantly being confronted with his own weakness, with his own loneliness, uh, with his own sense of irrelevance, and when he's not really giving good answers. So, I mean, if you look at um, if you look at First Kings 18, when he's in that contest on Mount Carmel, he is really quick on his feet. He, he's taunting uh, the, the prophets of Baal. Maybe maybe Baal's on a trip. Maybe he can't hear you. But when he's there in the wilderness, God is saying to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he's giving the wrong answer uh, over and over again. And it's not one of those situations where uh, you have a, a biblical figure who's giving a wrong answer. And then God says, no, no, this is what actually is going on. And he says, OK, instead, there's a sense of mystery where God is not answering the questions for him that he wants answered. He's leaving those things open, and that's because, I think, uh, of where God is leading Elijah, which we see ultimately at the uh, transfiguration, when, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on the mountain, and Elijah and Moses are there when Jesus is being transfigured into light. But what is Elijah talking to Jesus about? Luke says it's about the cross, about the sufferings that are to come in Jerusalem. And I think that's what's going on in the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, is he is being fitted for a cross in order to conform him uh, to the image of Christ. And I think that's the exact same thing that goes on in all of our, uh, all of our lives in various ways. So when someone finds themselves at a point of crisis, and by crisis I don't necessarily mean uh, some big event where you feel like you're falling apart. But those sometimes very small, ordinary moments that are turning points, um, often what God is doing in that is not teaching you how to uh, feel like you're winning or triumphing, uh, but teaching you to see your dependence in a different way in, in the light of Christ hmm. and to surrender to that. And, and that, I think, is ultimately the answer to fear. Man, I, I was going to ask you another question, but I want you to expand on that last thought, because that's a really powerful thought, um, as I was just, just meditating on that. Like, yeah, like, I love that idea that, like, I, I forget exactly how you put it, but, like, that God is creating a different sense of dependence. And, yeah. like, how have you seen that play out in your own life, and maybe those that you mentor and, and you help? Well, I think one of the ways is uh, sometimes people will quote uh, the fact that one of the most common commands in Scripture is do not be afraid. And, and that's true. But I think sometimes we misunderstand what that command means. Mm. And uh, sometimes I think uh, we think that what that means is don't have a sense of fear uh, at all. But it's not that. As a matter of fact, what God is often doing is sort of putting people into a place where they're seeing fear so that he can resolve the fear. So if you think about, for instance, the, the shepherds in Luke 2, 
uh, and the glory of the Lord. I mean, I grew up with the King James Version, and I tend to retranslate uh, back into KJV without even thinking about it, but especially when it comes to uh, Christmas narratives. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Uh, There's a moment of fear that only then do the angels say, do not be afraid, Hmm. for I bring you uh, good tidings of, of great joy. The, the, the fear that they're experiencing is also being experienced by Herod uh, around the same time. He's afraid he's going to lose his, his throne. And how does he respond? He responds with uh, violence and with sin. How do they respond? By worship uh, and by adoration. So I think that, uh, that often in uh, people's lives, what they find is that Jesus is doing for them exactly what he does for Simon Peter when uh, Peter goes out to meet him on the water and starts to sink underneath the waters and cries out. And then Jesus lifts him back up. Because uh, if you think about what does the Spirit uh, do, two proclamations that the Spirit gives to us, Jesus is Lord and Abba Father. And that cry of Abba Father is a cry of dependence. Uh, where where we really do see our own weakness and we see our own peril and we're we're crying out uh, to to the one who can hear us for deliverance. I think that God often is putting us in that uh, situation so that if you think about something as familiar as uh, Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he, he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, but why? It's not because the evil's not there. It's not because he thinks I'm more than a match for the evil. It's because you're with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so everybody uh, who belongs to Christ is going to get to those moments. Um, And I just had this conversation not long ago with uh, somebody who was in his 30s and um, was kind of going through this this crisis where he was really seeing his own weakness and just didn't know how to make sense of his life anymore. And what I said to him is, I think that you think that this means that there's something wrong with you, when actually I think you ought to be thanking God that you're going through this as early as you are. Because if you if you go through this in the right way, you're going to come out of it with a, a different set of priorities, a different understanding of, of the meaning of, of your life in Christ. You're going to be able to minister to people uh, very differently. Uh, and that's, that's much better than somebody who's going through that on a deathbed. <laughs> you know, that, that's a, it, it's really a grace that God's um, doing that at the moment. And I think, um, I know this is the case for me, and it's the case with almost every Christian I've ever talked to. If you say, where are those moments when the presence of Jesus uh, was most evident to you uh, in your life? It's almost never in those moments of triumph. It's almost always in those moments where you felt the weakest and, and the most desperate and Jesus was there with you. I don't think that's accidental. I think that's the pattern. Why is that the case? Because is that just because we lose that sense of desperation for God and just 
grow cold, or is it that, or is it that God is uniquely close to those who are hurting and are broken? I think it's because, as as the Apostle Paul said, um, he put us into peril of our lives so that we would know that our lives are not our own. And, and so that we were able to see God has delivered us before and he will deliver us again, which meant uh, that Paul is then able to uh, minister to other people in their, in their suffering. Hmm. So I think there's a tendency, all of us have um, left to ourselves, what we're always going to do is to have a sense of ourselves as God and a, a sense of ourselves as um, able to make our way in the world, either through our own kind of strength or talents or, or whatever, or because uh, we sort of see things as being regular. They're, they're going the way that they always have. You know, so as the Bible says, tomorrow will be the same as today, only more so. And that's just not true. We're frail children of dust. And so uh, part of what it means to follow Christ is recognizing that um, and, and recognizing not just that I'm a sinner, although that's certainly true, uh, but also the fact that I'm weak and every breath that I have is, is coming from, from God. And I, I, I think I really um, saw this uh, maybe clearer than I have in a long time. Uh, this past week, uh, my father died at the age of um, 74. And one of the things that I was thinking about the whole time is about when I was 12 years old and I was awakened uh, with my grandmother saying to me that my father had had a massive heart attack and wasn't expected to live through the night. Um, and so I went through the grieving process as a 12-year-old about losing uh, my dad. Uh, and he went through the process of thinking, I'm leaving behind a wife and three small children. How are they going to make it? And even after he survived that, all of these cardiologists were saying to him, your heart is too uh, damaged and too wounded. You won't live uh, more than a year or two. Wow. But he lived exactly double <laughs> the amount of, of life that he had, 37 more years. Mm -hmm. And so what I kept thinking through the whole thing is a, a sense of gratitude that, uh, that, that you know, if, if, if God had said to him or to us in 1984, would you take that deal? Uh, we would have gladly taken that deal. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a, a measure of, of grace. And I think there was a sense of, Counting one's days, as the psalmist says, that is important for us, not only because it keeps us from, uh, from counting ourselves as God and self-sufficient, although it's clearly that, your life is a, a vapor, but also because it gives a sense of gratitude. Where is this coming from? It, it's really not coming from my own cleverness or my own strength or my own earning power, whatever that is. Uh, and those are the moments when you can start to actually see what matters in, in the world. Why did you pick the subtitle that you did to the book, you know, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul? Um, I've got a couple questions on that, but why that subtitle? Because I've seen a lot of people who have, um, who have encountered fear, and the way they've encountered fear 
is through either numbing themselves uh, in various ways. Um, sometimes that's with substances. Sometimes that's with uh, just trying to find a way to kind of disengage from mm-hmm. life uh, or who have uh, dealt with fear by sort of turning themselves into self-protecting uh, kinds of, of fighters against all, all kinds of real and imaginary dragons uh, around them. Uh, rather than saying, okay, the fear that I'm coming up against right now actually is a, a moment of grace that God is giving to me where if I, if I walk through it uh, in Christ, God is actually going to use that uh, uh, for me. And I think that uh, the, the question there is then not going to be, am I going to be afraid? Am I going to come into moments of fear? But how, how is that going to, how am I going to respond to that by God's grace and by the Spirit? It seems like when we get on social media, obviously, you know this, it, it can sometimes be a dark place where people voice their fears and anxieties very freely. Um, but I can't help but wonder is, in all this angst, and this podcast will come out a couple days, just two days actually before Election Day, when it airs on our podcast channel. Um, and so obviously, a lot of people are anxious about those results and, and everything that comes along with that. Um, but but I wonder sometimes if, if and I think this is probably the case, that those fears that they have are, are yes, they're real and they're important, but there are often underlying fears that are so much deeper in their life, so much greater. Yeah. And I know in my life, personally, when I've voiced frustration, some of those times that I look back where I was very frustrated with others, public figures or whatever, it was often because there was a lot of stuff going on in my own life. And so Absolutely. Like how how do we deal how do we get past the social media fear and dealing just at a surface level and really get into the deep fear that might be in our hearts and saying, Okay, God, I, I don't know if I can trust you that you are enough. Well, I think it it kind of goes back uh to my recovering alcoholic uh friend, uh to say, um, there are some people who are able to navigate uh, the world of social media with integrity uh, and, and with a sense of freedom and authenticity, but there are very, very few. Uh, and, and for most people, uh, social media heightens some already, um, already really, really problematic uh, parts of us. So for, for somebody who has a uh, a vulnerability toward what um, Paul calls an unhealthy craving for controversy uh, and, and quarrelsomeness. Social media just makes it really easy to mainline that and to get the feeling that uh, I'm actually standing up for whatever it is that, that you know, truth or justice, or whatever. Um, and also, somebody who has a vulnerability to what the Bible calls fear of man. Um, of sort of finding one's identity in other people's perceptions. Social media enables that person to mainline that uh, as well. So you end up with this sense of um, kind of living with all kinds of judgment seats uh, around you. Uh, And I was having this conversation not long ago with uh, someone who was talking about the way that uh, social media was leading to a lot of kind of emotional and mental distress in the life of her teenage daughter, 
which of course studies uh, show that that's the case. And what I said to this mother is, of course it would. I mean, think about how difficult it is to be a teenager in any era because you're you're wondering where do I fit in? What do other people think of me? And what she's doing is sort of looking almost like a politician looks at the daily polling tracking numbers uh, to say, where do I stand? Uh, mm-hmm. wh- wh- what do people think of me? I mean, that's the case even for people right now. Uh, who, who aren't even, uh, it, it doesn't even have to do with them. It just has to do with, uh, you know, they support a particular candidate and every day there's right. there's polling data and they're either wringing their hands or celebrating, but it's like, well, what's the, what's the polling uh, average going to be tomorrow? Well, for a lot of people in that life, checking their 538 averages every day uh, in terms of social media, or they're they're seeing, you know, here's the party that I wasn't invited to, and, and I have it right in front of me, and that can just lead to a real distortion. And so, for for most people, uh, you can't sort of be raptured out into a universe with no uh, social media. But what you can do is to say. How do I, how much of this do I need and how do I make sure that I'm not uh, giving into my vulnerabilities there? How do you balance that line between having a healthy concern of something and then fear? Um, let's take the person that's uh, with COVID right now. Um, maybe their jobs and mm-hmm. people just work with it in, in several of my friends. I've just gone through really tough job situations ever since COVID hit and their companies yeah. have been impacted in a, in a big way. And that's very common. Um, and so obviously there's going to be some sort of fear or concern that they have. And where's that line between staying up at night and saying, okay, I need to provide for my family and I have these real fears yeah. and that should motivate me to go do something. But then on the same hand, okay, then I know I need to trust God. So how, how do you balance that in your life? Well, I think, first of all, by seeing that fear itself is not the problem. Uh, and so, uh, as uh, President Roosevelt said, we have nothing to fear but but fear itself. Uh, that was true in the context with which he was giving it. But it's not true as a general rule, because uh, fear actually is, uh, in some ways, a grace. Um, if you think about, for instance, what God says to Noah after the flood, uh, the animals will have a sense of fear of you. Well, well why? Uh, because without it, uh, without that sort of instinct of alarm, uh, then you're going to ha- they're going to be in a very vulnerable situation. Um, a, a human being who doesn't have any fear of uh, falling off of a building is is going to be walking off of buildings <laughs> or, or off of cliffs. So there's a sense of, of fear that's right. The question, though, is where does it lead? And so um, th- there's a kind of slavery to fear uh, in which the fear leads us to the flesh, um, either just in this obsessive sort of playing out of scenarios uh, or in this um, sort of, you know, fighting my way uh, around it, rather than where the Bible puts it, which is offering those things up in prayer. And that's a that's a great vulnerability that I have because uh, one of the things that I can see in my own life is how much I want to play out scenarios. 
uh, in my own head of things that could happen in the future, uh, whether it's you know some of the things you're talking about or just in terms of my children and, and the sorts of things that they might have to face and just thinking through all of those scenarios, which actually is rooted in pride because what I'm doing uh, in those moments is praying, but I'm praying to the wrong God. Because I'm, I'm trying to game out all the narratives and, and see that I can get control of that rather than being prompted to where I really ought to go, which is, to, God, I actually don't know where it is that you're going to lead me in this, but I know that I can trust you. And, and here's what I'm asking for from you. And I know that you're going to do what's good for me, uh, even if I don't know what that is. And I think that's that's ultimately where we, we ought to be led. It's interesting. I made a note on page 243, you write, and you quote from Henry Nouwen, and he writes, the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in the world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. And I think of that in the backdrop of what you just said and how, how difficult it is, especially, I even think of like myself with just doing this little thing with the Monday Christian and having different guests on. It's often easy um, to want to just prioritize, okay, I want to have great guests on. I want to, you know, and so quickly it can become, all right, so I want to impress others. And I just, I hate that, all right? But but it's it mm-hmm. just that temptation obvious, oftentimes is, is very real. Um, and so how... Number one, like, do you agree with that statement? I'm assuming so because you put it in the book. But, but yeah. how do you move towards that? I think one of the ways uh, that you move uh, toward that is seeing the worst case scenario uh, in, in front of you. Or, or it's not even the worst case scenario. It's just the scenario, which is to say uh, no matter what it is that you're trying to, to do, it's going to be impermanent. And you're going to be forgotten in, in all sorts of things that, that you're doing. I mean, in the long term, you're going to be forgotten uh, in terms of the audience that you're seeking right now. I mean, I think of that in terms of, um, you know, there, were, there was a figure that I really wanted to uh, – I, I wanted to find more about him. He really was a, a massive and monumental figure in his time. And I went through and nobody even remembers uh, who this person is. Well, you, you go long enough out, that is going to be the case for you. And so you have to come to this place where you're able to differentiate yourself from your gift set. And I think that's where a lot of people run aground. And that's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of people, when they lose a job, or maybe even they get older and they retire from a job. They're, they're kind of thrown out into spinning around because they don't know how else to, uh, how else to think of themselves um, because they haven't learned to think of themselves in Christ. Mm. And to see ultimately, yes, I'm going to be irrelevant. Um, but what God is doing is in the process of pouring myself out, uh, he's working in ways that I can't even see. Uh, and I think that's the case. You look at that in the in the life of Elijah, uh, when Elijah's sort of almost whining <laughs> to God uh, about his own life. God doesn't give him a picture of his future. He he gives him what he's going to be doing 
but it's with people other than Elijah. And there was probably you know, a sense of human nature saying, well, what about me? You know, you're, you're talking about somebody that's a replacement for me, but, but what about me? That's none of his business. And so I think we I think we have to ultimately see where all that is is going so that we don't. I mean, I think Elijah learned that lesson, but it took a while for Simon Peter to, to learn it, because when Elijah shows back up on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Peter wants to build a tabernacle, a monument uh, for him. And I mean, that's not a selfish act. He wants to build a monument for Elijah, not for himself. But nonetheless, God speaks and says, this is my son, listen to him. And uh, when they lifted their, their eyes, uh, the gospels say, they saw Jesus only. Hmm. And I think that's, that's ultimately what happens in all of our lives. And the, the sooner that we get to see that, um, it actually sort of counterintuitively enables you to be able to really be more effective because your life isn't dependent upon your effectiveness. Interesting. Uh, reading this morning from Gordon McDonald, and he shared about the difference between being called and being driven, and just mm -hmm. the importance of uh, of that. And so, as we wrap up our time together, um, what motivates you to do what you do? And I know, again, that sounds like it's such a generic question, but but really, what what's the underlying motivation? Because, admittedly, in my early days, especially, and I feel like sometimes now, I don't always get that right. So, what is that? Well, I don't either, and um, I I think. A lot of it um, is is about a sort of motivation that's not obvious uh, to the person. So if, if you say to me, um, what motivates you to do what you do? I don't know. I mean, I, I would know in the general sense, I want to serve the Lord. I want to, to do what I'm called to do. But a lot of that is just is just sort of under the surface in ways that are inaccessible to me. Um, just ways that God has has built us. And I think that's actually um, some of the people I've seen that are the most effective. I mean, it's why I don't I don't really like spiritual gifts inventories uh, and, and surveys, because I think sometimes it gives people the impression I need to find out where I'm gifted so that I can serve when usually what happens is the other way around. They, they just start sort of acting out of the way God designed them and the context that they're in. Uh, and only later uh, are they able to see, oh, well, actually what I'm doing is carrying out a spiritual gift. Mm. It, it's just something that just seemed natural to me at the moment. That's funny. I've taken so many gifts tests and I've thought the exact same thing. I can't even remember sometimes what my, what I'm supposed yeah. to be good at. <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition to the courage to stand, I encourage everyone in our audience to pick it up. Um, you're a big book junkie. So what are some books people should be reading uh, these days? Well, one of my favorite authors, Marilyn Robinson, has uh, just uh, released her new uh, novel in the Gilead series called Jack, and uh, I'm reading through that right now and um, am, am always uh, changed uh, by what she writes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll have all your information in our show notes below, russellmoore.com. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it, and, and especially— um, think of the built the midway part some of that stuff just really touched me and so I, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing that 
Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Blessings to you. Well, that was great. And I just so appreciate Dr. Moore taking some time to come on the podcast. I think the key line that stood out for me in our conversation uh, was when he said, what God is often doing is putting people into a place where they are seeing fear so that he can resolve the fear. That line connected with me and just so many parts of this conversation, especially that middle part, really um, hit home with me. And so I hope it's an encouragement to you. Maybe you're going through some tough stuff, especially in the midst of this um, <laughs> post-election uh, rough language, political climate, where it's so easy to get swept up in the fray of things. Um, hopefully this podcast encourages you and challenges you uh, like it has me to show more grace, love, and compassion for other people. I encourage you to check out Dr. Moore's book on Amazon, pick up a copy today. And until next time, my name's Ezra Beyer. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.